Welcome. My name is Dr. Jonathan Vorse, and thank you for downloading our podcast today on Working the Word. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to receive new podcasts every week. Thank you for your support at jvorse.org and enjoy the message today. Beginning in verse 16, we'll read through verse 21. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, and neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come at him for the press. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the Word of God, and do it. Yes, amen. Hear and do. I'm going to talk to you today about kingdom relationships. Jesus addressed it here. Father, thank you. We know you've already added your blessing to the reading of the Word. May we receive it with gratitude and joy and put it to practice in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at your neighbor and say, Receive. Ye the word of the Lord. Tell them, receive ye the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's recap uh, part 14, which was Sunday before last. In Luke chapter 8, earlier in the chapter, we see where Jesus is introducing the kingdom of God to those that are there and introducing the kingdom of God to his disciples. As I shared with you before, the kingdom of God is the realm of God, visible or invisible, where God's systems and ways of doing things are already established and working. I think it's very important for us to get that, so I'm going to repeat it. I want us to get it, okay? The kingdom of God is the realm of God, visible or invisible, where God's systems and ways of doing things are already established and working. We shared with you the, the, the development of that kingdom. How that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ and he would cry, the kingdom of heaven is coming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We shared with you the, the development of the kingdom throughout the scriptures all the way through the millennial reign of Christ and paid particular attention to the part where we are today where the church, the body of Christ, is developed inside of the kingdom of God. Then we went down to the parable of the sower. We saw, we talked about some of the things that people have said through the years about the sower and the seed. And we found out that the Bible says that the seed is the word of God. And so we found out that the parable of the sower really is a parable about the different responses of people to the kingdom that was clearly laid out in the parable of the sower. For instance, the wayside soil was the skeptical, superficial Christians who come to church on Sunday morning, punch the clock, and go home. So in other words, it's Sunday morning, I'm supposed to come to church, that's what I'm going to do, it's what I've always done, I'm going to come, and you feel good all week long because you went to church on Sunday. Well, that's kind of the wayside soil. Then we talked about the rocky soil, because see, the soil's always receiving word, 
Remember, he's the seed, we're the soil. So we've got the rocky soil, shallow, flashy saints. That's who they are, rocky soil, shallow, flashy saints. I put it down like this. They're the shouters and the professors, but not the possessors. The shouters and the professors, but not the possessors. And then there's the thorny soil. Those are, the, those are the people that receive the Word of God with joy, but worldly desires choke out the Word of God. Listen, if we live for God correctly, we're going to live the blessed life. We're going to experience blessings from the Lord. But we have to make sure that we don't let the blessings that God gives us choke out the Word of God. Let me say it like this. We're still called to live holy. We're called to live holy whether we're blessed or whether we're the world's definition of poor. We're still called to live holy. And then the last kind of soil was the good soil. And this is the soil that we were telling us or we were talking about that we should be. We need to be the good soil. And those are the people that receive the Word of God with joy. But they don't just receive it with joy. They actually allow it to shape their lives. To mold them and to make them into the image of God. So, we look at uh, Luke chapter 8 and verse number 10. We go, 10 uh, we go six verses above verse 16 where we started. And we find out that there are different levels of devotion. Now, I want to ask you this question. What are we going to do with the message of the kingdom? I mean, we have determined we're going to be good soil. We have determined we're going to sow into good soil. Sometimes we're the, sometimes we're the sower and sometimes we're the soil. We talked about that. The Bible said that God gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So there are times when God gives us seed to plant it in good soil. Then there are times that we are the soil. And that, that's why the Bible said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. But it didn't say that it's not, we're not blessed when we receive. It just says we're more blessed when we give. So there's a blessing in receiving also. So what are we going to do with the message of the kingdom that we have received? Here's what God said in Luke chapter 8 and verse number 10. Jesus said this. He said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. Jesus gave this answer in response to the question of the disciples about what does this mean? What do these parables mean? What are these things? And Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But there's others that are just going to receive it in parables. In other words, they're not going to be able to receive it because their level of devotion doesn't, doesn't uh, reach the point where they can actually receive the explanation of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. I sh shared with you last well, two weeks ago, I shared with you where the scriptures taught us that the ministers are the explainers of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. There is nothing hid that cannot be revealed. Some people say, well, the Bible is so confusing. That's because you're not, you're not dwelling in a word environment. Some people say, the Bible is so confusing. That's because you're not dwelling in a word environment. You have to give yourself to the study of the Word of God. You have to give yourself to the, to the unction of the Holy Spirit. The Bible said that holy men of God wrote 
the scriptures as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. So we give ourselves to spiritual unction. We pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him comes upon our lives. And as we read the scripture that, that once was confusion, be confusing to us because we have surrendered ourselves to the great teacher, the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden the spirit of wisdom and revelation comes alive and that which is confusing begins to be revealed. And so Jesus told the disciples, there are some that's always going to say these are parables, I don't understand it. But then there's others that it is given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And all of that is tied to one's level of devotion. Now let's go on to uh, verse number uh, 16. Luke chapter 8 and verse number 16. No man... When he lights a candle, covers it with a vessel, or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a candlestick, that they might enter, that they which enter may see the light. So I want to ask you this question right now. Are you hiding your light? God's called us to be lights in dark places. I don't go to the beach very much because I burn when I go there. And I just don't feel called to go sweat and get sand in my shorts. So I don't like the beach. <laughs> and because I don't go to the beach very much, my legs are very white. <laughs> and I always get teased about it. And I just look at my family and say, I'm called to be the light in dark places. <laughs> When I go to the gym and work out, I had one guy, I've never met him before in my life, never seen him before. But last year I was at the gym working out and it was late at night and I was there just working out and I was minding my own business. I was kind of in that workout rhythm, you know, doing whatever I needed to do. And he turned and he passed me and he came back and he looked at me again and he looked down and he said, wow. He said, I thought I had the whitest legs on the planet. He said, but I think I just got beat. I told him, I said, go lift some weights and shut your mouth. <laughs> Of course, he was teasing and I was teasing him. What are you doing with your light? Are you lighting up a dark place? Not with your white legs, but with the life that you live. Are you lighting up a dark place? Listen, we don't need to be ashamed of the move of God. We don't need to be ashamed when the Holy Spirit wants to break out in our midst. We don't need to be ashamed about a miracle maybe that God gave our family. We don't need to be ashamed of those things. We need to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. So when I read this chapter or this verse, verse 16, it says, No man which when he hath lighted a candle, covers it with a vessel, or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. When I read that, I think to myself, I don't need to be lazy with my faith. I don't need to be embarrassed of the move of God. I don't need to be embarrassed to be Pentecostal, in other words, spirit-filled, I don't need to be embarrassed when God wants to move and shake and quake and, and touch people's hearts and touch people's lives. What are you trying to say, Pastor? Here's what I'm trying to say. 
Don't let your light be hid because someone doesn't have the same interpretation of the scriptures as you do when it comes to the move of the Spirit of God. If I was the devil, I would try to tell people and try to convince people that the Holy Ghost was just for the beginning of the church. If I was the devil, I would try to convince people that tongues is not for today, that miracles are not for today, and I would sure try to impress on people that all those spirit-filled churches want is your money. If I was the devil, that would be my assault against those churches. Why? Because spirit-filled churches, those who actually produce what they profess, are a threat to the kingdom of God. Why? Because Satan's already been down this road. He followed Jesus around and saw Jesus work miracles and crowds thronged to Jesus and Jesus sat down and taught them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The best church growth program in the world is the move of God. Amen. Hello. We were talking yesterday and here I go. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't start going down memory lane but my wife and I were talking yesterday and I told her, I said, I love this millennial generation but I think the church has catered to them too much. Listen, they're used to having life all about them. So they're only going to go to a church where it's all about them. Church should be all about Jesus. It should be all about Jesus. And, you know, and some of them may watch this and may get offended. I'm going to tell you, don't get offended. You want what we want. You want the move of God. And what the millennial generation wants is not another fancy coffee cup because they went to a brand new church and, and five different phone calls and all this kind of stuff over the next week to try to make sure that they were welcome there. What the millennial generation wants and what the generation coming up after them want is the authentic move of God. They could care less about flashy lights. They could care less about fog on the stage. They could care less about that. Listen, you get God moving and it's going to attract people from the cradle to the grave. Hallelujah. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed to speak in tongues. Don't be ashamed to prophesy. Don't be ashamed to allow the gifts of the Spirit to operate in your life. Don't be ashamed to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Let it shine for the glory of God. Now, Luke chapter 8 and verse 17, Jesus says this, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, and neither is anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest. You know what that means? There's no such thing as closet Christianity. In the words of one of my friends growing up, one of my black brothers, he says, you either is... Well, you ain't. And he expounded on a little farther. He said, some people say that you can straddle the fence. Baby, there ain't no fence to straddle. No such thing as closet Christianity. Here's the thing. If you're a real Christian, you can't hide it. People are going to know it. If you're a fake Christian, you can't hide it. People are going to know it, especially the lost. Verse 18, take heed therefore how ye hear. Look at your neighbor and say that says how. Take heed therefore how 
Ye hear, for whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. What does that mean? The Word of God says that we need to be careful how that we hear. It's those who are excited about the Word of God. It's those who are excited about the move of God that qualify for the revelation of mysteries concerning the kingdom of heaven. The level of devotion that we have for God depends upon us. God is not going to leave you. In fact, here's good news for you. You can get as close to God as you want to get. God's not going to say, come on, okay, that's far enough. Come on, that's far enough. Oh, come on, two more steps. Okay, that's far enough. No, 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 no. God never trips us up. We trip ourselves up. God is standing there. He's saying, come on, get in my lap. Come on up here. Come on up here. I want to love on you. I want you to experience my power. I want you to experience my glory. I want you to live in the glory. I want you to live in the ambience of the presence of Almighty God. I want you to be. I want you to feel this. I want you to be a conduit of my power, of my compassion and my glory. No such thing as closet Christianity. Be careful how you hear. Be a real Christian and receive the engrafted Word of God so you can be a fruit-bearing Christian. Now, let's move on. Verses 19 through 21. This is basically the meat of where we were trying to get to today. Then came to him his mother and his brethren and, and could not come at him for the press. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Jesus took this opportunity to explain how much he valued kingdom relationships. The Apostle Mark, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21 and verse 31 of the same chapter, Mark 3, 21 and 31, seems to indicate that the family and the friends of Jesus were there to rescue him from himself. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's read it for just a moment and then we'll talk about it. Mark 3, 21, And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. Talking of Jesus. Verse 31, Then there came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. So then we go back over here to Luke chapter 8 and verse 21, and Jesus says, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Now stop and think about this for a minute. Jesus confounded the doctors of the temple when he was 12 years old. But he was 30 now. He's supposed to be grown up. We can understand it when you're 12 years old, Jesus. But here you are, you go into the wilderness, you're led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, the Bible said to be tempted of the devil. Then he returns in the power of the Spirit. He goes into the temple as his custom was in about verse 16, 17, somewhere in there. And the Bible said that he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read that scripture. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. And you know that, he, that whole thing, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he folds up the scroll, lays it down, sets down, and the Bible said that the eyes of all of them that were in the temple were upon him. This was 
This was 18 years later after he confounded the doctors in the temple. So Jesus looks at them, looking at him, and he makes this statement. He said, this day has this scripture been fulfilled in your ears. In Jesus' hometown, Jesus tells them, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. I'm the ones that the prophets foretold. I'm the ones that you've been studying about, that you've been praying for, that you've been waiting on. This is here. I'm here in the flesh. This is who I am. And you would have thought that those in Jesus' hometown would have embraced him because they surely had seen some of, some of the dynamic things that this, this uh, uh, above average man, young man of God had been doing. But no, they got angry with him. Jesus goes out then. He begins to be Jesus. He begins to heal people. He begins to talk with people. He teaches the things that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls himself disciples together. The Bible said a great company of women gathered themselves and ministered to him of their substance. And, and he started attracting a crowd. He was going, back in those days, it was a massive crowd. He was attracting crowds of four and 5,000 people, sometimes maybe 10,000 or even more than that, 20,000 people, like when he, with the five loaves and the two fishes. The Bible said that he fed, he fed 5,000 men besides women and children. And if every man had a wife and they all just had two kids apiece, which they had a lot more back then, but you're looking at 20,000 people. And so Jesus is busy being Jesus. And this is making the Pharisees angry. It's making the Sadducees angry. It's making all of those folks angry. And so they're plotting on ways to kill him. They're trying to discredit him. All of these kinds. Of, and Jesus just keeps healing people. And Jesus just keeps casting devils out of people. And Jesus just keeps teaching things pertaining to the things of the kingdom of God. And because of it, they got angry. Why? Because, as I said in the first service, Jesus was interrupting their country club. They had this little, this little system going. We'll use the law and we'll profit from it. But Jesus came saying, nah, listen, I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to finish the law. I've come to satisfy the law. We're going to put the law to bed. We're going to open up a dispensation of grace. No longer is this gospel going to be good just for the Jews, but it's going to be good for the whole wide world. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so his brethren comes. And the Bible said in Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, when his friends heard of it, uh, they went out to lay hold on him for they said he's beside himself. He's lost his marbles. When that didn't work, 10 verses later, they said, let's call his mama. Because everybody knows that mama can get you to do something when no one else can. Right? So we're going to call his mama. And so this is where we find ourselves. And the Bible said that they looked at him and they said, your mother is out there, your brother's out there, your sisters out, are out there. They can't come in because of the press that's on you. And, and, and they're standing out, out there and they want to see you. What were they wanting to say? What they were wanting to say is, Jesus, you've lost your mind. You're going to get yourself crucified. You're going to get yourself martyred. You're going to end up dead. My goodness, the Pharisees don't like you. The Sadducees are saying that you're a fake and all of the epicure 
Epicureans and the Stoics and the different ones of that day, the Greek scholars, they're all saying, no, 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 no. There's all kinds of people calling themselves the Messiah today. And here you are. But the, the difference between you and them is you're gathering a crowd and people are following you and you're becoming a threat to yourself. So what we need to do is we need to take you and rescue you from yourself. So Jesus did not say that they were not his mother and his brothers and his sisters, that she wasn't his mother and his brothers and his sisters were not there. He didn't say that they're not my family, but he expanded their understanding concerning family when he said, speaking of the kingdom, that I have a spiritual family too. And this spiritual family are those that hear my words and do them. And this spiritual family to me is just as important or more important as my physical family is. And that's what Jesus meant when he said that. Now, Jesus taught the principle of priority. I'm going to share a few things with you here. Here's what Jesus was trying to say. And I'm going to take you to a couple of scriptures here. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 14. But here's what Jesus was saying. He was saying God has to be the number one priority in your life. And I think here's what he was teaching. If you place your family above God, then you've replaced God and your family has become your God. Jesus never taught turn your back on your family. In fact, he taught bring your family to me. But he did teach, and I'll share it with you in just a moment. If you ever have to make a choice, if they ever put you in a place where you have to make a choice between family and God, choose God. Because God has to be the number one priority. Now, there are a couple of passages of Scripture that I think fit here, and they're some of the most misunderstood Scriptures in the Bible, and so I feel the need to clarify them, and it's a great way, a great time uh, to talk about it. Matthew chapter 10, verses 36 through 39 is the very first one. Here's what it says. A man's foes shall be those of his own household. I can tell you from experience, not much anymore, but early on in ministry, some of my, I felt like, some of my strongest foes were those of, that was closest to me in my family. They knew me, and they wanted something else for me, but the call of God was on me, and so I felt kind of warred against at times. It were good now, a long time, been good for a long time now, but I felt that at first. Verse number 37, I lived off of this scripture for a couple of years. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Now, look at verse 37. Did the word tell you not to love your father and your mother? No, it just said, if you love them more than me, then the relationship here, you're not worthy of me. And did the Bible tell us not to love our sons and our daughters? No, in fact, God wired us to love our sons and our daughters, right? He wired us to love our family, but God was saying, don't love them more than you love me. 
Now, in Luke chapter 14, we kind of up the ante a little bit. The language gets a little bit harsher. And this is one that I really want to explain. Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 27. This is Jesus speaking, words in red. If any man come to me and hate not. Look at your neighbor and say, that said hate. Hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now that sounds pretty stern, doesn't it? Now, if we just read that without studying the context of it, and if we read it without studying the culture of that day, and if we read it without understanding the interpretation of the word hate or the definition of the word hate back in those days, then we could very easily say, God's word says that I have to hate my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and my kids, so get out of here. I'm serving God. That's what it looks like. But when you start studying the culture of that day and when you start studying this scripture in context and when you start trying really hard to understand, you know, applying 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When you apply that principle to this scripture, here's what you come up with. The preacher's homiletical com uh, commentary describes that word hate in Luke 14.26 like this. It says, the word cannot be understood as active hatred because then Christ would be uh, fighting himself because he commanded us to love even our enemies. But here's what it means. It denotes a deep and heartfelt alienation from all ties and affections and feelings that would interfere with devotion to Christ. So here's what he was saying. Your love for me has to be so strong that if you're ever challenged to cash me in for anything else, that it's an automatic no without a thought. Now, another commentator said this. this passage, these passages are descriptive. I love this of outward attachment or adhesion. In other words, if a person allows their family to stand in the way of their attachment to God and His work, then they are not worthy of Him. So what this is talking about is attachment. Adhesion, like glue. God, I'm attached to you. I have an adhesion to you. I'm glued to you. I'm glued to your vision. I'm glued to your purpose. I'm glued to you, God. That's what it's talking about. And, when the, and what the Bible is saying and what Jesus is saying is if someone ever comes and tries to detach that relationship, then you have to have such a commitment to me as your number one priority that you don't let that attachment take place. In context, when you study all of the words that Jesus said about your family, God teaches you to love your family, to take care of your family, to encourage your family, to provide for your family, to protect your family, to love your wife as, you, as Christ loved the church and to take care of her and to give yourself for her. 
That's what the Word of God teaches. And the Word of God teaches this. Lead your family to the foot of the cross. Lead your family into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus said this in Luke chapter 8 and verse number 21, He answered and said unto them, My father and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Here's what he was trying to explain. The church that I am developing, the kingdom of God that is being created, that he would be the head of, he's the head of the church, we're the body of the church. All of that is so important to me, I put such great value on it that it's primary, premier, priority one value to me that I see that attachment as stronger than even the attachment I have to my physical mother, my physical brothers, my physical sisters, and all of that. What does that mean for us? That means that God values the relationship that He has with us even more than He valued His early relationship with His mother. That's how important kingdom relationships are. God cares about you, church. He cares about us. So the question, we have to ask ourselves this question. I'm closing, but we have to ask ourselves this question today. What's my attachment to God look like? The challenge to us out of this passage of Scripture the challenge to us is to examine our relationship with the Lord. Am I letting a job stand between me and my relationship with God? Am I letting a friendship stand between me and my relationship with God? Let's bring it home. Am I, am I allowing my son or my daughter to stand between me and my relationship with the Lord? Because God has to be number one priority. It has never ceased to amaze me for several years. God's called us to live holy. God's made us righteous. And He's called us to live, to have righteous living. It's never ceased to amaze me. There are people that will come to me and they'll say, I don't understand why my kids don't want to come to church. The reason your children don't want to come to church is because on Wednesday night when there was ball practice or church, you chose ball practice. Well, I just don't agree. I'm not asking you to agree. I'm asking you to, extend, uh, to examine yourself. Who's the number one priority? I don't know why my kids don't want to serve the Lord. Well, it's Sunday morning, and instead of coming to church on Sunday morning, 24 out of the 52 weeks out of the year, you're out on family vacation somewhere on Sunday morning, and you're not, you're not even pulling anything in on live stream. You're out playing instead of learning how to live for God. God's got to be priority. God has to be the number one priority in our life. And people get angry with me when I talk to them about that. But then those are the same people that come to me later and they say, my kids grew up and they won't even attend church. That's because you taught them that everything else is more important than learning how to live for God. Well, I can be a Christian and not go to church. If you're a real Christian, we can't keep you out of church. 
That's right. Anytime I get the opportunity to learn, for, learn about God, anytime I get the opportunity to be in the presence of God, I can be in the presence of God alone, but anytime I get the opportunity to be in the presence of God with you all or another group of my brothers and sisters, man, I'm there. I'm there. I want to experience the presence of God. I want to experience the flow of God in my life. I'm committed. God is number one. And God needs to be number one. And this is what Jesus was saying. you got to make me number one priority in your life. There is no excuse good enough for God not being number one priority. And so we have to examine ourselves today. Out of this passage of Scripture, that's the challenge of this Scripture. We examine ourselves and we say, God... What's my attachment to you look like? Am I taking something or someone over you? So I'm going to tell you something. God's a jealous God. Mm. Yes, Lord. God's a jealous God and God's not into idols. Shall I expound? I'm trying to quit, but I'm feeling prompted by the Holy Spirit to expound a little bit here. What's an idol? Anything that takes the place of God in your life, that's an idol. Your favorite TV show on Wednesday night, you have to stay home and watch it because you can't take an hour and come to church to study the Bible. That show has become your idol. There's legitimate reasons why people can't come, but most of the reasons that I've heard don't hold weight. I'm going to be real bold here. You know I love you and I shoot it straight. Some of y'all need to fish or cut bait. What's my attachment to God? What's my attachment to His Word? What's my attachment to the move of God? How committed, committed am I to the vision of God's house? How committed am I to the vision that God has for my life? For the purpose that God has in my life? The level of relationship that you have with God after salvation is completely up to you. I don't want to be a fringe Christian. I don't want to always be standing on the edge looking, saying, wow, that's cool. I want to be in the thick of it where I don't have to look from the edge, but I can say, whoo, this is cool. <laughs> don't want to be a fringe Christian. Well, how, how do I change that? You develop a soaking mentality. God, I'm going to soak up your presence. I'm going to soak up the anointing. When the word's being presented, I'm going to soak up the word. Because I'm not going to be a fringe Christian. Totally committed. Unabated, unconditional servitude to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're part of the body of Christ. And God wants us to be committed. Let's stand. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a few moments.
Let's search our hearts. Come on, just search your heart. It's a time for reflection. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, then I would love to lead you in the sinner's prayer into a relationship with the Lord Jesus. In fact, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you want to give your life to Him, just pray with me right now. And those that's watching live stream, just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to be a Christian. I believe you're the Son of God, that you died on Calvary for me. Today I receive you as my Savior and confess you as my Lord. In Jesus' name. Now, if you prayed that prayer, then God's true to His Word. Then He's accepted you into the family of God. But there's a whole lot more to it. You were a baby Christian. You were just born again. And there's a lot of growing to do. That takes discipleship. This has been a discipleship message today. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to just examine your heart. Those of you that are Christians. Hopefully that's all of you now. Examine your heart. Lord, is there something in my life that I value more than you? Lord, do I have attachments that are pulling me this way and that way and another way? Lord, I just want to be pulled towards you. Lord, reveal to me what those attachments are. Help me to unhook from the things, God, that's stopping me from being fully devoted to you and to your purpose in your word. Charles is going to sing a little chorus and as he does, I just want us to search our hearts and let God work on us for just a few moments. Come on. Thank you for listening to Dr. Jonathan Vorse on Working the Word. We appreciate your love and support. Visit www.jvorse.org to give a gift today. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the rest of your day. Always remember, the Word will work if you work the Word. Be blessed.